so welcome to tonight's session of the Religions and Practice of Peace Colloquium on Transforming Racialized Divides in the United States, Insights from African-European-American Experience, co-sponsored by the Racial Justice and Healing Initiative at uh, Harvard Divinity School. I'd like to start off by expressing special thanks to our guest speakers, uh, Dr. Leah Gunning-Francis and, and Dr. David Anderson Hooker, for coming all the way from St. Louis, Missouri, and Atlanta, Georgia, respectively, to be with us uh, this morning. Um, uh, Leah gets a 6 a.m. flight out tomorrow, so uh, our commiseration. Um, um, I want to thank also the Racial Justice and Healing Initiative, initiative for co-sponsoring tonight's event. To my thanks go to the El uh, Habri uh, Foundation for its support of this year's RPP Colloquium Series, and um, uh, and also to Reverend Karen Vickers Budney and um, and Al Budney for their generous support of the RPP, which makes all of this all of these things possible. Also, like to thank uh, uh, faculty, fellows, alumni, and graduate students of the RPP Working Group. Uh, from schools and programs right across Harvard University. All of you here tonight, peace builders, scholars, members of the public, um, thanks for coming and for adding your expertise um, to our new adventure. And as always, I want to thank our dedicated RPP students and volunteers, um, and especially uh, Lizzie Hood, who does all the hard work behind the scenes um, to make us all look better than we really are. So thank you. Um, we've been especially looking forward to tonight's session and this opportunity to uh, explore the issue of racialized divides <clears throat> in the United States with a focus on the African-European-American experience. It is an issue that has been of central importance in this country, as you all know, since its very inception, from our history of slavery to the Civil War to abolition and segregation to the civil rights movement, not to mention the racialized divides um, entailed in the devastation of the Native American population, discriminatory immigration laws, Japanese internment camps during World War II, all kinds of structural inequalities that despite many de jure changes in law, have continued to perpetuate de facto deep inequalities in our society. I actually struck, I, was, um, I got a few days over spring break last week down on Hilton Head Island um, and came across a site that I didn't know before, but I know Catherine will know and I'm sure some people in the audience will know, uh, Mitchellville, which was the first settlement of freed um, uh, African slaves uh, coming out of the, um, um, the early Union Army engagements uh, in Hilton Head back in really early in 1861-62. Um, and uh, a settlement was uh, constructed there of uh, a large number of freed slaves who uh, built a couple of churches, a Baptist church, a Methodist church, uh, some schools, um, and became a farming community. Um, um, it's a very exciting and interesting uh, venture, which of course was pretty well decimated by um, uh, uh, white intolerance and uh, repression by the 1880s and 90s, and the um, uh, and uh, uh, Mitchellville as a as a place uh, pretty well disappeared from view. But it is being reconstructed um, uh, as we speak, and it's really an interesting site if you ever find yourself down in there. But it's an early example of a wonderful ex experiment that, alas, um, was uh, squashed uh, over time. 
So these issues have come under renewed national focus in recent years with the Black Lives Matter movement, catalyzed by the well-publicized um, and horrific deaths of black men and boys at the hands of police from Staten Island, New York City, to Ferguson, Missouri, and from Cleveland, Ohio, to Baltimore, Maryland. These incidents remind us that racialized divides profoundly affect the daily lives of many of our citizens in tragic ways. And they're always close to home for all of us, as was made um, starkly clear by an incident of racial vandalism here at Harvard Law School just a few months ago, uh, which many of you know about. Students, faculty, and administrators across Harvard University and here at the Divinity School have been active on these issues, taking part in the Black Lives Matter movement, organizing and participating in protests, marches, rallies, sit-ins, holding prayer vigils, making practical recommendations, and trying to implement changes. The law school, as you will know, um, announced last week that it will retire at Shield, which contained the crest of a slave-owning family that were early donors to the school. Leading the way for us here at the Divinity School has been the Racial Justice and Healing Initiative student group, which has been holding numerous events and activities to foster engagement on this topic uh, in really terrific ways. In late 2014, Divinity School students adopted an oath committing, quote, to addressing racial justice and healing in our classrooms, in our religious communities, and throughout society and to do so through strategies that connect the head and the heart and are rooted in the ethic of love, a commitment shared by our school as a community. So I'm very grateful to uh, that initiative and to the people who have um, uh, been leading and sharing in it. Along with, a, uh, along with a variety of courses at the Divinity School on race and religion, we've had a number of new activities and additions to the curriculum intended to create more spaces for serious exploration of this topic, and we know we've got a long way to go on this. This semester, Cheryl Giles, Senior Lecturer in Pastoral Care and Counseling, associated with the Buddhist Ministry Initiative, along with Tim Wilski, Associate Dean for Enrollment and Student Services, and Donna Bivens, Lecturer on Race, Equity and Inclusion, are offering a course on a new course on how race matters. We are pleased to have a visiting lecturer and minister in homiletics, uh, um, um, uh, Dr. Brad Braxton, the founding senior pastor of the Open Church in Baltimore, is with us this evening, um, who's been working on the front lines with the Baltimore community since the recent unrest there, and is teaching a wonderful course on preaching, healing, and justice. The Divinity School recently conducted a racial climate survey, the results of which we um, uh, are, uh, uh, have, uh, have seen the preliminary results, but a, a deeper drill down into the data is being conducted as we speak. And we've discussed the preliminary finding, findings of that survey at a town hall meeting on engaging our racial climate and visiting the next 100 years at HDS. It was a great conversation and, and made clear that we have a long way to go here. Uh, we're under no illusions about that. And earlier this month, one of the student leaders of the Racial Justice and Healing Initiative um, uh, Lama Rod Owens, who's here with us tonight, facilitated a conversation for students uh, in the RPP colloquium course on tonight's topic, so I'm grateful to you for that. Two themes that have been recurring in our exploration to this topic at the Divinity School and which merit uh, greater attention in other settings are the role of trauma and racialized divides and the potential of religious and spiritual resources and religious communities 
in helping to positively transform them. We are therefore very grateful to have with us tonight two guests with real expertise in these areas to share their insights with us. We're also grateful to have with us, to guide us through tonight's session, Professor Catherine Brakus, the Charles Warren Professor of the History of Religion in America at the Divinity School. Uh, Professor Brakus's research focuses on the relationship between religion and American culture, with particular emphasis on the history of women, gender, Christianity, and uh, the evangelical movement. She is currently teaching a freshman seminar on Christianity and slavery in America from 1619 to 1865. Um, so with that, and uh, with no further ado, I'd like to turn the program over to um, Catherine Brakus. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for coming. If I could just add to one more logistical thing. If you have a cell phone, um, please turn it off. We have wonderful speakers. And I don't care if you interrupt me, but I don't want to interrupt them. <laughs> So, as David Hempton mentioned, I'm teaching a freshman seminar this spring on Christianity and slavery in America. The course grows out of my conviction that we cannot understand our contemporary racial situation, including the segregation of churches on Sundays, without examining its roots in slavery. The course revolves around several questions. What was the role of Christianity in sanctioning slavery? How did white Christians become convinced that slavery was sinful? How did many slaves, or why did many slaves, convert to Christianity, the religion of their oppressors? And how did enslaved Christians make sense of their suffering? Most of the work of the seminar has involved reading first-person accounts from different perspectives. We have read the narratives of enslaved Africans, sermons written by pro-slavery theologians, and the anti-slavery writings of white and black abolitionists. If my students were here, they would tell you that the readings have often been disturbing. I ask students to imagine themselves as the people that we are reading about, to try to see people in the past as real human beings with real joys and sorrows. But this requires a level of identification that is painful. To imagine oneself as a slave is painful. This week, when the class read Harriet Jacobs' book, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, two of my women students wrote eloquent papers expressing their horror at the sexual exploitation of enslaved women. As one of them said, she had never fully realized the suffering of women who could not escape from the constant threat of rape. To imagine oneself as a white master is also painful. None of my students want to imagine that they could be capable of the brutality inherent in slavery. One student, a white man, keeps asking a version of the same question each week. How could white Americans who call themselves Christians own and abuse people of African descent? To imagine oneself as a 19th century abolitionist might seem easier, but <laughs> this too has proved painful. My students have been profoundly disappointed to discover that even anti-slavery activists like Harriet Beecher Stowe held racist assumptions about the inferiority of black people. 
Though I have been teaching and thinking about slavery for two decades, I cannot say that I am immune to the difficulties faced by my students. It is hard to face the history of slavery and to acknowledge the way that its legacy still haunts us. Yet as a historian, I put my faith in the hope that confronting our past will help us to create a better future. So I'm very grateful that we have two speakers with us tonight who will help us to reflect on how to transform the enduring racial divides in our country. Our first speaker tonight is Dr. Leah Gunning Francis, the Associate Dean for Contextual Education at Eden Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Gunning Francis earned her PhD from Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary and her MDiv from Candler School of Theology, our competition at <laughs> Emory University. She is the author of the newly released book, Ferguson and Faith, Sparking Leadership and Awakening Community, for which she interviewed more than two dozen St. Louis area clergy and young activists. A passionate champion for changing the public narrative about young black men, Dr. Gunning Francis focuses on the role of faith communities as agents of justice and social change. The title of her present presentation tonight is A Boy, a Wrestler, and the Racialized Imagination, Encountering Narrative in Ferguson and Beyond. Thank you and good evening. It is truly my pleasure and joy to be with you this evening um, to share some, just a few of my reflections on um, a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I know that for many, wading into the waters about conversations about race and the racialized divides in our country can be very scary for some. Um, but for me, I think that they are necessary, critical, and important if we're going to really forge a future that our children and our children's children can live into with hope and promise. So I thank all of you uh, for being here tonight. Um, I look forward to the conversation and discussion. Let me extend a very special thanks to Dean Hempton and to uh, Dr. Catherine and to Liz and Julie, all of you who have worked to make this evening possible. Thank you. On November, in November of 2014, I was invited by Chalice Press to write a book on clergy involvement in Ferguson that kept an eye toward the involvement of young people and their support of it. I ended up conducting more than two dozen interviews with local clergy and a few young activists that I had encountered many times on the streets of Ferguson in protests and marches and in meetings in different places. Snippets of their stories are shared in Ferguson and Faith because it was very important to me that a more comprehensive narrative about clergy involvement in Ferguson made its way into the public square. 
I was very interested to know not only what they did, but how they understood what they were doing as integral to their faith commitments. And for so many, they were working out of those commitments in very real and tangible and practical ways. The images of the tanks and the tear gas had been seen around the world, but many had not heard the kind of stories that are in Ferguson and Faith. I've received countless emails, calls, letters from strangers around the country saying, I had no idea, or I never considered the events in Ferguson through their perspective. Stories or narratives matter. Who tells them and how they're told matter. Narratives give shapes to thoughts, ideas, and worldviews that in turn give shape to policies, practices, procedures, and the organization of our communal life. One narrative in particular that I saw and heard reinforced in the framing and reporting of the Ferguson uprising is the prevailing stereotype about young black men. This narrative that young black men are thugs, criminals, deviants, is wreaking havoc in many of their lives and in the lives of those who love them. The day that 18-year-old Michael Brown was killed by Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson, it was noted that it all started with a stop. Mike and his friend were walking down a residential street, and I must add that if you ever have an opportunity to visit the St. Louis area, please do go to Ferguson and go to the Canfield apartment where Michael Brown was killed. Everyone I talk to who goes there says, I didn't imagine that this was just a narrow residential street. It didn't kind of look that way on television. And so he and his friend were walking down this street on a sunny Saturday afternoon, and according to Mike's friend, he said that the officer told them to get the F out the street. That started it, and then it escalated to an unarmed teenager being shot multiple times and killed. At one point, the officer had shot Mike several times in his right arm. That's when witnesses were saying that he had his hands up in surrender. But the officer says that that was the point where Mike allegedly started charging at him and that he had no other recourse but to start shooting him again and fatally wounding him. While the grand jury in St. Louis County deliberated the evidence for three months. Now, please note that that entire process was very highly contested. I kept saying, who's going to believe that an 18-year-old kid with no history of assaulting police officers would charge headfirst into the person that's shooting at him? That explanation made absolutely no sense to me. But then I read the transcript 
of the officer's testimony that he gave before the grand jury, where he said, quote, I felt like a five-year-old boy holding on to Hulk Hogan with demon eyes. This was during the alleged struggle in his vehicle. He went on to say, that's just how big he felt and how small I felt grasping his arm. At best, it's an odd description for a six foot four inch man to say about another six foot four inch person. At worst, it was the resurgence of the magical Negro or the giant Negro stereotype that has pervaded the imaging of black men since the antebellum era. A recent study explored some of the ways in which this particular stereotype is still alive and well today. In, so, in Superhuman Bias in White's Perceptions of Blacks, the authors relayed their findings of white people's attribution of superhuman mental, not intellectual, and physical qualities to black people. This is important because it reinforces the narrative that black men in particular have superhuman strength and a very high tolerance for pain. It is a narrative that leads me to question its import in the officer's testimony. It is a narrative that has far-reaching implications for which Professor Stephen Ray calls the racialized imagination as it perpetuates black people as other. When the racialized imagination is at work, logic and reason seem to be overruled by fear that emerges from negative and dehumanizing stereotypes. The officer did not kill a gentle giant or a wrestling figure. He killed a human being. And until black men, young black men, are seen as human beings first, I believe we will only continue to see these and other kinds of tragedies. The negative stereotyping of black men that has persisted for centuries has to change if they are ever going to be afforded the right to live into the fullness of their humanity. At the core, this is a theological issue because it undercuts the very notion of the Imago Dei, that all people are created in the image of God. The racialized imagination was also at work when George Zimmerman saw Trayvon Martin, an unarmed 17-year-old kid, walking down a Sanford, Florida residential street. You may recall that story four years ago where Trayvon was walking, minding his business, and we heard on the 911 tape where George Zimmerman called the police and said that there's this kid, he's just walking around looking about. I didn't know walking around and looking about was a crime. We know that Trayvon Martin was not breaking into a home. He was not trying to steal a car. He was not even throwing rocks. 
across the street. But George Zimmerman insisted that this narrative going in his mind that this kid was up to no good. We also know that the 911 operator told him, don't get out of the car, we'll send somebody. But before George Zimmerman dismissed what the operator said, he says, quote, those a-holes, they always get away. He said that before he hung up the phone, got out of his car with his gun, chased an unarmed 17-year-old kid, stranger danger at its absolute worst, to make sure that that a-hole did not get away. Once again, I say there's no way a jury is going to believe after hearing all of this that this adult was justified in stalking and killing this 17-year-old kid. But once again, a jury believes mm, George Zimmerman was only standing his ground against Trayvon Martin. If we are to counter the narrative that emerged on the streets in Ferguson and Sanford, Florida and in Chicago and in Cleveland and in Baltimore and in too many other places to name this evening. We must insist that black men, young black men be seen and understood first as human beings created in the Imago Dei. We must awaken all of our senses to the ways in which young black men are dehumanized in media, in certain forms of music, in video, in public policy, school policies, and so forth and so on. In a much longer presentation, I would talk about what it means to awaken all of our senses, our sense of sight, hearing, taste, touch, and smell. But for our purposes today, I would like to enter into a conversation with you at the appropriate time about what it means to awaken our sight. And I do so by asking you the question, what do you see when you encounter a young black man? What first comes to your mind? When you see a young black man, is the first thought thug, criminal, gangster, deviant? Or is the first thought person, human being, child of God? Thank you. Thank you very much for that powerful presentation. Our next speaker is Dr. David Anderson Hooker, who is adjunct professor at the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding at Eastern Mennonite University. This summer, he will become professor of the practice of conflict transformation and peacebuilding 
at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at Notre Dame. He is the president of the Counter Stories Consulting Group and a member of the staff collective of Just Peace, the United Methodist Church's Center for Mediation and Conflict Transformation. He is also a former Assistant Attorney General for the state of Georgia. Dr. Hooker holds several master's degrees, including a master's of minority mental health from Washington University, a master's of public health and public administration from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, a master's of divinity from the Candler School of Theology. We clearly need to compete better. <laughs> a JD from Emory University's School of Law and a PhD in social construction from Tilburg University in the Netherlands. I would hate to see your tuition bills. <laughs> he is the co-author of Transforming Historical Harms, which many of the members of the RPP Working Group have read, and the author of the forthcoming title, The Little Book of Transformative Community Conferencing. For more than 30 years, Dr. Hooker has been a mediator, facilitator, community organizer, and independent scholar who has worked not only in the United States, but also in many other countries. And this is only a partial list, including Bosnia, Croatia, Cuba, Kenya, Myanmar, Nigeria, Somalia, Southern Sudan, Uganda, and Zimbabwe. The title of his talk tonight is Transforming Historical Harms, Performing Hyster Hysteri Historical. Hysteri I'm, a, I'm a historian, but I can't say historical. <laughs> and spiritual narratives to transform race, privilege, fear, and faith. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Um, I really appreciate uh, your remarks. And the one thing that I want to lean into probably in the moderated time is this notion about even the possibility of our site as access to Imago Dei. Mm. Um, so I'm really interested in that. But thank you very much for your remarks. Thank you for the introduction. I have way too many remarks, so I'm going to be cutting them down. But in the meantime, what I'd like you all to do, give me permission, all appropriate thanks being extended. I got to say thank you to Leslie Hood. Um, but all other thanks being extended, all protocols being observed, we can just move into the remarks. Is that okay? <laughs> uh, actually, I, okay. I would do that. I got to say, I got to say, Thank you to my Habibti, um, my goddaughter Janice Luke, uh, who thought that it would be okay even though she is in the middle of getting ready for a dance recital and she's the president of the student body at Smith College. She thought that she would drive across the state and support her Baba, and so, <laughs> shukran, huh? <laughs> I would say that, and, and her mother, who stepped away from her pulpit on Monday, Thursday, to be of support as well. Thank you both. Um, let's just start. <laughs> Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, Sandra Bland, Renisha McBride, Tamir Rice, Oscar Grant, John Crawford, Jordan Davis, we could go for a while, right? That could be the entirety of the remarks. 
We could take these remarks in a slightly different direction, add a slightly extended historical period, and ask about Amadou Diallo, uh, Rodney King, Mumia Abu-Jamal, John Africa, Asada, Shakur, Ernesto, Che Guevara. We could, we, we could do that for a long time. And it seems as though um, the list of possibilities of names is endless, of people who have had their lives either cut short or deeply impeded by impacting systems that were formed in racialized narratives. And so we really, but if we're gonna move towards something that looks like reconciliation at any point, we have to really spend a little bit of time unpacking how those racialized narratives are formed, how our religious imagination really both produces, reproduces, and sustains the racialized disparities that we're experiencing. We have to acknowledge that religion plays a deep part in the experience of the life that we have, and then uh, figure out where is there to move from here. And so what I hope to do in a brief period of time, I'm going to be relying on our moderated time to, to uh, fit some of this in, but for a brief period of time, I want to consider four possible things. I'm going to do a really brief primer on trauma. Uh, add four little constructs that I think are helpful for our conversation. Um, and then to have a trauma-informed conversation about race and racism, right? Uh, particularly with a particular focus on narrative. And then let's look at, I want to offer a framing of reconciliation. This is really where I want you all to work with me. I'm, I'm playing with a framing of reconciliation that I talk about as radical co-equality, right? And so I want you all to really lean in, know that I'm not completely wed to any of it, and so I want to invite your critique of that, and then talk just a little bit, probably during our back and forth, about some of the examples of some of the places in these United States where we've had so-called um, reconciliation efforts and see whether they are either hopeful, promising, or where the shortcomings are. Um, so let's move. I'm talking a little bit fast, but let's move. You all stay with me on this. Um, trauma. Let's start there. Trauma, this is a very, very brief primer. I do both a 14-week course, a 28-week course, and a degree looking at trauma. So we're going to do in four words, right? Um, let's think about trauma in four words. Trauma itself, this is the first place that I think is really important. Trauma is not an event or a circumstance. Trauma is the response to an event or circumstance. Trauma happens when the capacity to respond is overwhelmed at either the individual or group level so that you know, um, your ability to respond to a sense of threat is, is not met with your capacity to respond. When people feel overwhelmed, trauma is performed. It could be, I like Judith Butler's notion of precarity. This is really, precarity, Butler says, is when anything living can be expunged at will or by accident, and its persistence is in no sense guaranteed. She also goes on to say, precarity designates a politically induced condition in which certain populations suffer from failing social and economic networks of support and become differentially exposed to injury, violence, and death. 
precarity is characterized by that politically induced condition of maximized vulnerability and exposure for populations exposed to arbitrary state violence and to other forms of aggression that are not enacted by states, but against which the state seems to be either indifferent or incapable of providing protection. If you are constantly exposed to that level of violence where your, your existence, your very existence, your way of life is threatened and you're overwhelmed, you don't have the capacity to meet that, then that's trauma, the inability to respond. And so it's important because in a circumstance where this happens, I talk about this as being traumagenic because not everybody will respond the same way. Traumagenesis suggests some people in a certain circumstance will be overwhelmed, others will not, right? And so it's a differential understanding. If you have a different way of meaning making, you have different observation skills, you have different resources and skill sets, some people will be overwhelmed, others will not. Traumagenesis. And so we, but it's important to distinguish between the event and the response because it's the performative responses that get carried on generation after generation. And that's what we're trying to disrupt. It's not, the events are often long gone, but the performative of trauma is still present. How, if at all, do we interrupt that? And so what we know is when people are overwhelmed, they have all kinds of responses, physical, mental, emotional, behavioral, spiritual reactions. And because people who are overwhelmed respond differently, because they experience the trauma differently, they're going to respond differently. They're going to react differently. And so trauma gets performed in a variety of ways. We know the basic ways, hypervigilance, paranoia, avoidance, flashbacks, and things like that. But trauma is also responded to or performed through acts of courage and spiritual growth, right? What happens, though? How does it happen that people who weren't directly experiencing the pain still perform the trauma? This is the question. Um, Jeffrey Alexander, in his social theory of trauma, says that for trauma to emerge at the level of collectivity, social crisis has to become cultural crisis. Events are one thing, Alexander says. Representation of those events is quite another. It is the result of acute discomfort entering the core of the collective sense of its own identity that produces the trauma. Let's think about that in these terms. Let's, let's think about it in relationship to something like um, the events of 9-11, September 11th, right? It turns out in these states of America, um, I think we go too far if we say united, right? Um, so in these states of America, um, it turns out that relatively few people were actually directly impacted either by the towers falling or the planes crashing in DC and Pennsylvania, and let, yet a vast majority of people experienced, a, a large number of people experienced a sense of trauma, that the performativity of trauma, right? And so, the way that this happens is there was a narrative that was created that said our very way of life is under threat. And people who were more closely tethered to a national identity experienced trauma. And those who didn't necessarily have a tethering to an actual national identity or a New York identity didn't necessarily experience the same level of overwhelm, 
right? So you could have been in Oklahoma, but if you had a sense that you're really an American and America's way of life is under threat, then you might have experienced the overwhelm very differently than other people. And then what happens is we perform, we have this response. And so one of the natural responses to trauma is hypervigilance, right, and paranoia. Um, so one person tries unsuccessfully, have no idea what he was thinking, to put explosives in the heel of his shoe. Hypervigilance now has it that everybody in every airport takes off their shoes. That's actually the performance of trauma, right? Most of us didn't actually have the direct impact. Most of us didn't experience the pain associated with it, the fright associated with that one event. But all of us have to go through the motions of performing the trauma. Once you've started performing trauma-based behaviors, the story disappears. The behaviors just keep going. This is supposed to be a conversation about race. Trust me, this is a conversation about race. Stay with me, because I, what I know is people get really shut down when you talk directly about race. And so we're, gonna, we're, we're stepping up to it because there's something about our either complicity or apathy with the circumstances that allows us to detach. And so what we're trying to do is have a conversation about race by coming around to have a conversation about race. Y'all don't go anywhere. Um, <laughs> so there are these two concepts. So even as we talk about what happened after 9-11, there are two Two, the two next constructs that we want to talk about are these ideas of legacy and aftermath. Legacy, the combination of history, folklore, mythology, and lies that people get passed down. It's like the stuff that you get inherit, that you inherit, and then you live out of. We structure our lives, we build these stories, we organize our lives around these stories, regardless of how closely tethered they are to an effective representation of the truth. And then aftermath, if you think about aftermath, it's the structural remnants from uh, you know, the aftermath of a hurricane or a tornado is all of the rubble that's around, right? The rubble that was around when the towers came down. What did they do with the rubble? They pulverized it and they used it to rebuild stuff and they pulverized it and they made it art. That same structural stuff becomes part of how we relate. And so there are policies and laws and systems that were built based on a trauma-based story from a while ago, and even when we stop telling the story, the systems are still in place, and so they keep uh, impacting the way that we live our lives. They structure the nature of our relationships. And so um, that trauma, I mean, the aftermath and legacy are the way that trauma-based behaviors get passed down from generation to generation. And it should always be clear that those are operations of power. Power, action acting on the actions of others. And so when you constrain yourself, there's a way in which, Michelle Foucault talks about this, um, if you only have one way of thinking, uh, then you organize your life inside of narratives based on that. People often quote Michel Foucault and say, knowledge is power. Whenever Foucault wrote about power or knowledge, he wrote these two concepts together. He wrote knowledge slash power. People translate that to say that what Foucault was saying was knowledge is power. What Foucault actually said is knowledge is the manifestation of power. 
which means that anytime you see, because there's always more than one interpretive that's available to be passed down, and so whichever one gets passed down with an imprimatur of truth, that's a reflection of a particular power regime, which would suggest to us that while most of us learned as children a little poem that went something like, in the year 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? We could have also learned a poem that said, with God and crown on his side, Columbus initiated genocide. Both of those would be equally representative, and yet one of them is the one that gets passed down as though it's the truth, and we all live our lives around it, and we organize our lives, and we take the holiday, the Columbus holiday. But it's only a few cities in the country that actually celebrate or at least mourn the initiation of genocide of First Nations people. That's changing a little bit. The narrative is beginning to shift. But that's, a, that's an operation of power. The last little piece of this primer, the last term, I know we're, we're supposed to be talking about this other thing. We are. Trust me. Stay with me on this. Performativity, really quickly. Um, J.L. Austin gave a set of lectures here at Harvard uh, where he talked about, it became a little book, Things You Can Do With Words. It's a really great book. But in it, he started giving language to this idea of performative speech. You all know what performative speech is. When I, as soon as I tell you, you know what performative speech is. There's a kind of speech where you describe circumstances that are going on. It's raining outside. It's Tuesday. It's cold. There's a kind of speech where you ask for an explanation of what's going on. What day is it? Um, how cold is it? You know, what's the temperature outside? But then there's this category of speech called performative speech which is in the speaking of it, you are creating facts on the ground. So at the end of a um, commitment ceremony, when the officiant says, you two are married, they're not actually reporting history. They're actually establishing facts on the ground. Right? That speech is performative. It creates the circumstance in the same way. We raised my godson up and we said, we call your name Itzak Gabriel Ben Rivka, Isaac Gabriel, son of Rebecca. We call him Max, but, um, <laughs> but it wasn't true. It was creating a circumstance, right? One of my favorite performative speeches is the Declaration of Independence. Because none of it was true when they wrote it. <laughs> Not a word of it was true. And if you actually go back and look at it, because they, one of the things that I really like is United isn't actually even capitalized. United isn't the name of the country. United States, it, United was a description of the colonies in their, cho in their choosing to reject Great Britain. So it was United, small, States of America. So we are States of America, and from time to time, uh, we have been united. So, but I really, I wanted to say all of that. That's my, that's my primer on, um, on trauma. And all of that was to allow me to make this one claim. Power is embedded in narrative and then produced and reproduced through the workings of legacy and aftermath in response to previously traumagenic circumstances. And we continually use performative speech acts to establish those facts on the ground. <laughs>
Why does any of that matter? Because race is fiction. Race is actually performative. There's no biological, physiological distinguishing features. There's no genetic distinguishing feature that establishes the existence of race. Race is a performative, it's a socially, it's a politically and socially constructed uh, value. And its only purpose is to serve as a tether for, race, for racism. Racism is very real. Race is fiction, right? But a lot of our work around reconciliation is about racial reconciliation. So we're trying to have a conversation that allows us to reconcile around a fiction. Race has no better connection to reality than Charlotte's Web, Finding Nemo. You know, it's, it's, it's along that line. But we have organized our lives around it. What has made it true is that we've organized our lives around it. And so it has become a mechanism for distribution of privileges and so on and so forth. Racist fiction, racism, aftermath, structurally present, it's here. It has to be dealt with. I do have to, this is a history thing, so I want to spend just a minute in this. In the Virginia, in the Virginia Assembly in 1705, an ordinance was passed which says, all servants imported and brought into this country who were not Christian in their native country shall be accounted as slaves. You hear that? All, then they make a, a next distinction. All Negro, mulatto, and Indian slaves within the dominion shall be held to be real estate. So they, they created two categories. And we always think that that category was about black folks and about Native Americans. This ordinance was designed to control non-land-owning white folks, poor, scratch, dirt-farming white folks who needed to have something, so they gave them the property value of whiteness with the expectation that they would never ask to be invited into the landed gentry. The way that you manage them, we get confused. They got confused. They're living in a trauma-based system, in a trauma-based reality, and we are too, all of us are. But we tend to focus on as though people of color are the ones who were really hoodwinked by this, right? who really got shackled by this. Everybody got shackled by it. And if we're going to do anything about it, we actually have to do something that um, addresses everybody's trauma. I'm going to cut these short. If we had a little more time, because I'm a lawyer, because I love law, I would, I would reference a number of cases that all talk about the property value of whiteness. We think of them as other things. Plessy versus Ferguson, Brown versus Board of Education. All of those cases really are about affirming the property value of whiteness, the one that I do want to make sure that we, Loving versus Virginia, 1964. People interpret that case as though it had something to do with interracial marriage and allowed people to be interracially married. If you read the text, 
what it said was the property value of whiteness cannot be usurped by access to or, or um, activating the freedom of association, which means even if a white woman marries a black man, you can't ban her from white society, polite society, the way the text says, polite society, to be read white. What does that mean, though? It means, because there was this other narrative that created black and white, or created male as a hierarchy over females. Now, if you marry a white woman, does that give you access to polite society? I know there are a whole bunch of black men who think so. But, <laughs> all right, all right. Modern Christianity, the Western interpretation, created a racialized, racist imagination, which has been built in and becomes the, and I would spend a lot more time on that, I don't want to, but if you get a chance, J. Cameron Carter's race, a, theolo a theological account, is a brilliant unpacking of how it came to be that the Western interpretation of Christianity was connected and directly associated so that Western culture and Christian culture could be the same, and in that way distinguished it between Oriental and Occidental so that all Jewish and darker-bodied folks could be considered inferior. And that, we re reproduce that in all of our imagination. So let me offer this. Let me offer this. It's a lot of work to be done, but I just want to offer a framing for, oh, Y'all know? Yeah. This is to suggest that race is performative. Race is a declaration. You get to decide who you want to be to some extent. Some people will try to assign it to you. Other folks who have sufficient morphological remnants and have the capacity, the performative capacity, to assume blackness as their way of being. So, it used to be passing only went the other way. People who had African descent but could get away with it would go to someplace else, not tell people who, who they were related to, and then they could pass for white and get into, they get invited to polite society. But now passing has gone the other way, which is why um, nobody notices that for the last six years in the hip hop category in the Grammys, nobody black has won. Nobody who's morphologically black has won, because the people who get to be performative um, all get to adopt whiteness. They're passing in the other direction. Quick offering of a framing for reconciliation. And then, um, and then we'll talk. So this is my thought about what it's going to take us to move beyond this. It's all inside of narratives. Reconciliation is an interwoven set of practices that share the aim of establishing identities that are radical. That is not a misspelling. Relationally constructed, which means that they're built among equals. Authentic, which means there's full self-expression coming from a healed place where we've gotten a chance to fully explore individually and our group identity. Dignified in the sense that they have enough space so that you can, fully, you can be fully expressed in relationship with another. 
interconnected. You can't be reconciled and live in different parts of the world. Legitimated, which means that the social, political uh, structures don't impede full self-expression or the relatedness, the dignity of a relationship. And then performative to co-equal, which is the justice measure, which says that everybody has full and fundamentally equal access to the resources they need to thrive, to survive, thrive, and make full contribution to the extent of their capacities. If we're building an interwoven set of practices with this as the aim, then I think that moves us through the place where Black Lives Matter and the DeWitt Proctor Conference and so forth, folks are trying to go. It moves us through that place, but we can't stop in a place where race is the final framing. If race is the tethering for racism, and if our reconciliation is racialized, we will have left in place the load-bearing wall to reproduce racism in some other form or fashion. And so our reconciliation has to be beyond race, not colorblind. It has to be a place where morphology is interesting, possibly informative, but never predictive. That's the place where we have to go. And that will invite us towards what some folks are calling humanity 3.0. And so that's where we'll go. Amen. I'll leave it. Thank you so much for these comments. Um, I would like to just open things up so we can start a conversation. Um, as those of you know who've joined us before, these um, RPP colloquium sessions double as class meetings for the graduate students in our working group. So in the next phase of the program, the graduate students, faculty, and fellows in the working group will engage our presenters in a period of conversation, and then we'll open up the conversation to the entire audience. Tonight, the group is also joined by graduate students in the Racial Justice and Healing Initiative. So I'd now like to invite graduate students Chris Hampson, Christina Houle, and Rod Owens to start our conversation with a few questions. Testing? Oh, um, thank you so much um, for both your presentations. Um, I know it's very meaningful for all of us to have you here. Um, I'm here at the Div School and at the Law School, and as the Dean mentioned, we've been thinking about this a lot in both places. Um, I'd like to invite you to speak a little more on um, religious leaders and religious institutions. And I'll just say a little bit about what I'm thinking of and then pass it over to you. So you mentioned um, who tells the story matters and performative co-equality. Is there a special promise in religious institutions and religious leaders as centers of storytelling mm. to help this situation? And is there a special concern that by doing so they may take away voices from other people who should be telling those stories? One of the things I found with my interviews for Ferguson and Faith was that the clergy people who were sharing their stories of you know, what they did and what was going on were very intentional in reflecting on 
how they did not want to take center stage because, not because they didn't have anything to say or have very clear thoughts about what was happening, because what we knew was that it was the young activists who had very much took the liberty, rightly so, of standing up saying, no, we demand justice, we need answers, we need change, and had done that for days and nights on end. So when many of the clergy started going out and standing with them in solidarity, they, for many, especially the ones I talked to, um, approached them with a sense of, I'm not here to take over, I'm not here to tell your story, but rather to stand beside and with and support you in the telling of your story as well as using the resources that I bring to help advance the cause. So um, absolutely, you know, any clergy person or religious person uh, in, in that way would, would really, um, I think, be uh, remiss in taking the posture of, okay, I'm here to save the day, you know, let the party get started because I'm here. But rather, when we enter the space, um, realizing that we can bring our own voices, but also for the voices that have already been there, um, especially those who are most marginalized, like many of the young people who were out there, to let them tell their story in their words and in their way and to be a, a, a real voice and of support and advocacy for that. So with regard to the concern, what I'm aware that uh, David Duke's Ku Klux Klan was a Christian organization, and Martin King's SCLC was a Christian organization, and both of them had a very similar mission, which was to save what was valuable in these United States. And so there's a way in which particular narratives get drawn from scripture that encourage the clergy bring into a space that will cause them to act in one way or another. Are you a liberating force? Are you a law-giving force? Are you somebody who operates under the notion that all authority, all earthly authority is given by God and that we should do everything decent and in order? Or are you somebody who understands the value of uh, appropriate disruption? And sometimes clergy get scared and they adopt narratives that are fear-based narratives for younger people. So this is, this is the primary admonition. If you're scared, say so, stay home, stay near the back, let folks who aren't scared do the work, right? And there is no universal narrative that gets drawn from these scriptures. So the narrative that you bring to the scriptures is gonna be, you're gonna theologize your narrative. And so it does matter who's telling the story and it does matter what their intention is and the, how much theologizing they do with that narrative, you know, is we have to pay attention to that. Yeah. Hi, uh, good evening. Thank you, um, um, uh, Dr. Donna Francis and Dr. Hooker. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, my question is really about um, I think, how do you define healing? How do you define healing? Healing. healing. Mm -hmm. 
um, for both of you. Mm -hmm. So for me, that whole notion of uh, the reconciliation where, we, where I'm in a space with others that's relationally constructed, where I have the opportunity for authentic self-expression and I can be in community with others to do that and have the capacity and the resources to be able to make my full contribution, that starts moving towards a, um, a healed, a fully expressed um, individual and community. And so all of the work, and it's really helpful that it's always ing. It's healing, not healed. You know, healed happens, y'all don't be offended by this, healed happens at a Benny Hinn gathering. It's done, right? You're laid out, you're slayed, it's done, you're healed. Healing is something that we do in the real world, like with people, and it's a constant reflection back to the spirit and to others in community, and it's a relationally constructed, ongoing, uh, process. The, the ongoing work of he, this ongoing work of healing for me is uh, inextricably linked to wholeness and thinking about healing uh, mind, body, spirit, communal, all mm -hmm. of that together and what does that look like and what does it feel like mm -hmm. and what does it sound like and what does it mean when we can um, bring our full selves to any situation, authenticity, mm -hmm. one of your points, all of that for me is connected to healing. Mm -hmm. Just one quick follow-up question as well. Is there ever, can there be justice without <laughs> healing? Mm. There be justice without healing. The shortest and most accurate answer that I would offer would be no. Mm. Um, mm. Justice requires having created a space that allows you to be fully self-expressed, to be fully authentic, to have experienced um, and dealt with both trauma, hurt, harm, uh, and limitations and impediments, but that requires a healing. And so justice is also a healing, it's an ongoing, it's an interwoven process. Um, when you bring someone to justice, you, you're bringing them to court, you're bringing them to law. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but law and justice are always spoken of with a comma in between, which means they're separate and distinct identities. Law and order are spoken of as a particular shared phrase. And so law is primarily designed to maintain order. And when justice only exists inside of the law, then we're missing the point. So there's got to be a broader sense of what justice is. And then inside of that broader understanding of justice, I think healing is a requisite. Mm -hmm. I'd definitely say restorative justice couldn't happen without healing. Um, I want to think about that more. Really, mm. this is good. Mm. I hadn't. I mean, I'd, I'd never. I hadn't really thought about mm. justice and healing, and can one happen without the other? I think a lot about justice and peace, but can justice and healing mm -hmm. happen? What are mm -hmm. your thoughts? <laughs> Seriously, what are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah. Hello. Um, uh, well, I had a ton of questions, so I'll just try to be 
very clear and very short. So my background, uh, professional background, is more from engineering. So I tend to think in terms of practicality, utility. And I think about going off this question of justice, those in the past who have, at least on the surface of it, relinquished their rights to justice for the sake of restoration. Mm. Think of our great human leaders like Mandela or Gandhi or any of these characters who absorbed justice is, is the term that someone I know would use. Where that came from, where the ability to do that comes from, I don't know, in short, but mm -hmm. I feel like that's been one of the best accelerators towards healing for everyone involved. Not only the ones maltreated, but the ones doing the maltreating, because of course they're mm -hmm. obviously in need of healing too, on a mm -hmm. certain level. Um, I guess that would be my short response. Yeah. Mm. Uh, thank you for that brilliant question, Rod. That's a very, very brilliant question. It has been running in my head for quite, quite long time. Justice and law. Jesus was asked, what's the best of the Ten Commandments? He said, love. Love is law. Justice is never connected with love. Justice is never connected with law. Another way of approaching this question is, as a chaplain I'm talking, I sit with in front of a patient with, with say, a depression, with weird story in a uh, rational kind of thinking, I would say his story is, his reason to be, to be depressed or suicidal is stupid. He would say, like for example, a 10th grade student, he failed an exam and he says, I am done, the life is worthless, I'm, I want to die. I have to say, you're stupid. Mm. But the moment I say you're stupid, or the moment I even think of uh, uh, a thought like that, I have judged him. Mm -hmm. The moment I judged him, I can never heal him. Mm. I had to throw my judgment away. Mm. So I had to look at my thought, I had to keep it aside. Mm -hmm. So a, ju a judgment, and, and once I do that, I can empathize with him, with, with whatever his reason is, mm -hmm. and I can heal him. Mm -hmm. Miraculously, it happens as a miracle. So justice has nothing to do with uh, law and uh, mm. love. Yeah. Thank you. So let me just do a quick follow-up on this. So I, as a lawyer in a criminal justice circumstance, the way, and you, you all understand this from restorative justice, the way that we ask questions about what justice is to be done is we say what rule was broken, what punish, who broke the rule, what punishment do they deserve? That's not what I'm talking about. That's retribution. That's not really, I'm talking about justice. What harms were done? What relationships have been damaged? How do we make it right? Making it right is justice, and that seems to me to be directly connected to a healing mechanism of some sort. So that's how I distinguish the two understandings of justice that people always often have. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, in listening to your presentations, I couldn't help but think about the performance of racialized identities in relationship to space and also in relationship 
to it, to one another, mm -hmm. and I was, uh, and it came up uh, in both talks, uh, in the description of the space uh, where the shootings occurred, and then also in the description of the memorial for 9/11, how the the physical um, debris was used in the reconstruction of space and reproducing the trauma. And I was wondering if you could just both speak a little bit about. Uh, I, I guess also in thinking about the actions at the law school, how the visual imagery of, um, of the seal is being changed as an effort to um, reconcile the performance of uh, the school's racial identity. And I would love to hear, uh, hear your thoughts on, on how that contributes to the reconstruction of new narratives. Excuse me, I'm sorry. <laughs> Excuse Bless me. You. Thank you. Sorry. So, in thinking about um, the use of space, the the role of space in construction of narrative, is that what you're wanting to? I guess also thinking about um, the, the physicality. Aesthetic? The the. Uh, how we are shaped by the spaces that we inhabit. Mm. Oh, thanks. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. Do you want to stop? I've so, got a little issue here. So I think that we are formed by the spaces that we inhabit. The space makes sense inside of a particular narrative. Structures, form follows function. Um, structures tell particular stories. And the aesthetics inside of the form, the, the small words, the, symbol, the symbolism on the seal and so forth, it has multi-generational capacity to carry information, to carry knowledge, to carry narratives that often are invisible and uninvestigated. And so all of the spaces that we operate in um, influence how we think about um, the kind of the world that we should be living. I, I've, I've been struck by a lot of the uh, stories on NPR, National Public Radio, where it talks about two and three generations of families living together now, and it's saying that that's a failure because of the economy, right? And so it says, because of the economy, people have failed, they have to live together. And so that, there's a particular narrative that says we should claim a certain amount of space and, and individuation. And so, the, so how do we retell the narrative so that that space isn't, um, isn't representative or reflective of failing, but is representative of a conscious choice to be in kind of a multi-generational continuing relationship with people who have loved and socialized and cared for you over, you know, so when does it become a failing? So, Spaces carry and reproduce and confirm narratives. And they only make sense inside of certain narrative structures. And so if you change the narrative, you will also change the space. Right, right. which is just to add to that a little bit in terms of why it's so important to define that space and to clarify what is that and what is, what's the meaning, the what's the well. meaning implied uh, within that. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Can I give you just a really quick example? This is 
in Greensboro, North Carolina, it almost is an unconscious and invisible thing when you're coming from the west part of Greensboro. You will, if you are paying any attention, and it was just curious to me, that about five blocks from downtown, all the sidewalks stop. There's no longer sidewalk. It's just a really interesting thing. That space, though, when you investigate it, what you know is that that's the side of town where North Carolina A&T, Guilford, and Bennett College were. And that's where the students were organizing to come downtown for the sit-ins and so forth. As long as they were on sidewalks, they weren't illegal in their assembly. But once they moved into the street, they had to have a parade route. And so if you could take up the sidewalk five blocks from downtown, then you had the capacity to arrest them and keep them from their civil disobedience. And nobody notices that they haven't gone back since 1960 and built any sidewalks there. That's a space telling and it's an invisible understanding that from this side of town, you may not actually be welcome to come downtown. We're not trying to make it accessible to you. And that hasn't changed since 1960 when they started sitting in downtown. Space invisibly reconstructs and affirms particular narratives. Thank you. We are grateful for the very poignant questions. What do you see? Mm -hmm. How do you heal trauma? What are the practices of reconciliation? Mm -hmm. So my question and observations have to do with this pernicious thing called the veil. Mm -hmm. I need some help with the veil. As I was listening to you all, it struck me that this is the 25th year of my conscious freedom fighting mm -hmm. on these issues. Mm -hmm. And I'm struck by the fact that I'm having in 2016 some of the same conversations I had as a graduate student in 1991. Mm -hmm. The veil is pernicious. Mm. So I started my work with this reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to God's self. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. Then I started moving around in elite progressive white spaces mm. and started noticing that the moment I said the curse word, mm -hmm. reparations, mm -hmm. All of these otherwise good-meaning white folks mm -hmm. shut down on a brother in a hurry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it then occurred to me that I had been going to 2 Corinthians 5 and had not dealt with what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 3. Mm. The veil that falls over people's minds mm. when you talk about the strategic investments necessary right. to lift the veil so we can actually have serious conversations about reconciliation. I don't know that I want to argue just yet. Mm -hmm. Let's just have a conversation. Mm -hmm. So what word do you have to us, particularly when it comes to dealing with, with what Brueggemann calls the surplus compensation? Mm -hmm. right? According to Leviticus, you got to add 20% on top. Mm -hmm. We got folks who struggle if you talk about 50% to try to get to parity. Mm -hmm. The veil, mm -hmm. how do we deal with the veil? Mm -hmm with otherwise good-meaning folk mm -hmm. who are shutting down on us around the structural investments mm -hmm. that have to be made beyond all. I don't want another daggone conversation about race. Sure. I want structural readjustments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what do you say about the veil? I don't, I'm, I'm chuckling a bit because I don't know if you've had a chance to uh, read Jennifer Harvey's book, Dear White Christians. Mm -hmm. 
You've read it already. Mm -hmm. and, and she addresses this very idea that for years and years and years, we've been talking about reconciliation, but when we need to talk about recon re reparations, mm -hmm. but that when it comes up, like you say, whoop, mm -hmm. time to, oh, it's getting late. Oh, mm -hmm. gotta go. Mm -hmm. Walk the dog. <laughs> So getting beyond the veil for me is to go ahead and name that. I think in just the naming of it, that um, of what it is, that this exists, that this veil, that this, this barrier, that this distortion, however you want to frame it, that it exists and that we cannot move toward healing, toward justice, toward true reconciliation until that happens. And so, you know, I, I, for me it starts with even just the not being afraid, having the courage to be able to name it because it's so unpopular in many circles. It's so taboo, it's so not PC in, in so many circles. And so, uh, and, and this is progressive circles. Yes. Where it's, huh? Oh, progressive, progr yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where it's not popular. And, uh, you know, when, when I heard Jen, Dr. Harvey, present on this book, I just, I just kept wanting to look around the room to see how people were responding mm -hmm. <laughs> because it was, for many, such a radical idea. But so I just say, you know, mustering up the courage to name it um, and to, 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 to start there to say this is non-negotiable, that it's not just a nice idea, but put it on the table as a non-negotiable and see what happens, how progressive folks are. Half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore it now fourfold. On this day, having, having made that move, on this day, salvation has come to your house, right? <laughs> um, it, when I did the thing on reconciliation, that bottom, the performative co-equality, you know, it didn't move. Like, I start with that. I talk about all these other things, but the foundational aspect is that there has to be a justice component to it. How do we redistribute what's the harm that was done, you know, what does it take to make it right, and who has the capacity to contribute to making it right. That's the justice move, and unless you're willing to be in that conversation, it, it's difficult to see that you're really serious about this. I worked with the group coming to the table for a while, which was a collection, as a dialogue uh, among um, descendants of former enslaved and former enslavers from the same plantation systems. Plus, we also had the descendants of the, one of the largest two slave trading families in, uh, in US history. We get them all together, and we've got these four quadrants that we want to work on. History, healing, connection, and action. I can keep them together for a history conversation. They are. DNA deep in the files, excited about finding their history and making connections. They even want to do a whole lot of the 
you know, the restorative co-counseling stuff where we shake and the somatic stuff and we get it all out of our system. It's like, okay, great. Now, how do we begin to take action if you notice that your family had the capacity and chose to take land from this family and you all have been building on that? You're, you, you all made your connections. You've got your history. You've got direct relatedness, right? This is a one-to-one -one kind of thing. What action might you take to begin to restore that? I can't get nobody to come to those sessions because that's the session. Once we start redistributing wealth, what we're also doing is redistributing the property value of whiteness, which is in these states of America, irrevocable. The narrative is that property value of whiteness is irrevocable. And so that's the place where I think we have the deepest, most difficult conversation. And quite honestly, a lot of the theologized language around reconciliation, where we go to the cross, we pray about it, and everybody walks away, is a cover that allows for the continuing perpetuation of that injustice. And so it may be because people are moving away from mainstream and kind of, they're, you know, they're moving to places like the open church, right? Where we're starting to have a different conversation about it. So we can have a different theology and that might help move us in that way. All right. Okay, I think we should open it up to the whole group now. Thank you very much for the lecture. Uh, my name is Farouk Martins. I'm the chief consultant for the RSA Enterprises. And my background is public health. Mm -hmm. Is this on? Yeah. It's on, okay. The question about justice and healing still got me. <laughs> um, people define justice in different ways. Mm -hmm. If you go to court and they give you compensatory damages, punitive damages, they've already defined that you got something. But restoration, to bring you back to what you were and compensate you for the lost time. Hmm. That is why people say there is no justice. So when you say healing and justice, those are two different things. The only time you get justice, like some people say, is when you go to heaven. But then, <laughs> you say, no, I want justice right here. Mm. They used to pray and say, look, forget about what everything that is happening to you on earth. When you get to heaven, you'll be rewarded. Mm -hmm. But we also know that there will be no justice unless you are at peace with yourself. Unless you decide on your own that look, even if you've gone to jail for 20, 30 years and they give you millions, that is no justice. What can restore? What can bring back everything you've lost? So justice is something you really have to define on your own. How can you be at peace with yourself? Mm -hmm. Who are you willing to forgive? Mm -hmm. And who are you willing 
to associate with. Because you know that that wound will never heal because there are people around trying to poke it on the surface to remind you the heal, the healing only continues and is peace within yourself. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask you a question and it's probably politically incorrect, but I think we have to be a little bit open if we're going to discuss things. First of all, I'm wondering, when you, when you listed a, a number of black men, you didn't list Obama, you didn't list Clarence Thomas, you didn't list Sammy Davis Jr., you didn't list, you know, Harry Belafonte, you only listed, um, you know, and I'm wondering, and, and when you said that people look at um, young black men as, as delinquents, you know, thugs, et cetera, I'm wondering if the real di divide is not race, but class. Mm -hmm. and, and my second mm -hmm. question mm -hmm. in, in regard to reparations, a lot of Americans that are here today, our, our forefathers did not own slaves. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering why people who did not own slaves would be expected to give reparations. Mm -hmm. So let me, let me start with a second question first while we're on this, right? So we, because we're all, we don't have to be all politically correct and everything like that. You have benefited from your, from the property value of whiteness since before you were formed in your mother's womb. And you have continued, you have continuously had access to things that you didn't actually build, you didn't actually create. And even those Farmers and non-land-holding white folks got the benefit of the structures that provided a distinction based on morphology. The reason we still count blackness and whiteness is so that we can continue to separate people and have access to privileges so that you've been accessing them. You may not have had all of the same level of access. You'd love to be in the realm of the Donald Trumps, but you are operating in another level. You benefit from it. You should pay. Don't get confused. Don't get confused, you should pay. But the reason that everybody should be contributing to reparations, because it's not an individualistic thing, it's a systemic thing. Because like Ed, Eduardo Bonilla Silva talks about um, racism without racists. And so people get to go along and contribute and support systems that continue to produce and reproduce the disenfranchisement, the disparity, and the divestment. And so even if you're not intentionally and actively supporting those systems, as those systems operate, some people benefit from them and some people are impacted by it. And sometimes we get confused thinking it's about class. And at every level of class, disparity continues to exist. And so it's not about class. And several of the people that I mentioned actually were really amazing middle class, upper middle class folks who got shut down, right? And so my list was class, uh, ran a class spectrum, if you would. Now, what I heard with your list, they didn't get shut down. They got killed, didn't they? Most of them. Oh, yeah, no, they were killed. Right, right. Right, right, right. Yeah, most of them. They weren't like, just like, sat down, sit down now. Yeah. I mean, so this list, these are about people that have been killed. Right. Um, which we know cuts across the class spectrum when it comes to race. Mm -hmm. Trayvon Martin was a middle class black kid. Um, so for me, you know, I, I, I don't think we should ever just say, oh, it's not about race, it's about class. What the data shows 
is that race and class and gender, I mean, these things go together. Mm -hmm. And so we need not say, oh, no, it's not this, it's that, it's not that, it's mm -hmm. the other. But especially when we talk about race as it relates to black people in the United States of America, we have enough data. We don't have to do another study on any topic, in any field, on any subject in this country as it relates to um, disparities and, and what's happening with black people in this country. We have enough data. We just need to have the courage to name what this is, to call out this evil for what it is. All of these things that we're talking about, the, the people's names that we've named, um, I, I can't speak for Dr. Hooker, but for me, I just find it hard to believe that they would have met the same fate had they been white. I don't believe I don't believe that had Trayvon Martin been white, minding his business, walking down the street, that George Zimmerman would have assumed him guilty of something, even though he wasn't even doing anything. Well, what the data shows, mm -hmm. what the data shows, because let's talk about the hoodie. Let's talk about the hoodie. You know, how many white people walk around Harvard's campus with hoodies on? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Mm -hmm. I mean, ser let, let's talk about the hoodie. Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. many? I mean, in your neighborhoods from where you come from. Mm -hmm. I know they do where I am. Well, Belichick, Zuckerberg. Right, Zuckerberg. <laughs> I mean, from Zuckerberg on down. But what the data shows, it's not even about, you know, the, the, the attire. This is what this whole politics of respectability talks about. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times when folks say that, they mean even when we wear nice clothes or a suit and tie or speak correctly and do all the right things, go to college, get a job, start a business, you know, do all the right things, mm -hmm. you're still pulled over mm -hmm. driving while black, walking mm -hmm. while black, playing mm -hmm. while black. So it's beyond just um, the, the physicality of somebody's attire or anything like that, the, the racialized imagination and the assumptions that are embedded within that, they're toxic and they're deadly. Mm -hmm. And we've got to confront that mm -hmm. and deal with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Orson. Hi, good evening, and thank you both um, for your presentation. What I am struggling with, and Dr. Hooker, I think that you began to touch on it, um, is the very thing that, that I, I think is emerging, um, one of them that's emerging in the conversation, and that is this idea, or, or, or the framework within which we're having it, this epistemic, um, framing of the conversation around race tethered to religion, um, but not a lot of conversation around capitalism and the economic structures that then signify mm. the, 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 the um, value of whiteness, right? And, and it, it's material, it's very tangible, that functions and operates in these very material ways that affect the existential reality. And so, be it capitalism in the broader context or within the church, when I hear conversations that move too quickly 
to reconciliation and forgiveness, right? Because that is, you know, when um, Dylan uh, Roof. Roof shot the, our brothers, brethren in uh, South Carolina, that was the performance of religion and blackness um, that was supported, that is supported in our culture to this move beyond this idea of wrestling with and struggling with, with the real mm. impact of, of racism. Mm. And so my question is, can we talk about reconciliation, justice and healing without talking about, without flipping the conversation from being destructive towards black bodies to the fact that it is to protect whiteness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's a very different point of entry and epistemic framing of the conversation mm -hmm. because we continue then to walk away without looking at and interrogating the systems and structures that buttress the, the, the state-sanctioned killing of black men and women um, in our society. Mm -hmm. Theologically, I think that the same theology that has constructed kind of a race, racialized imagination, a racial superiority, has been the, the foundation for uh, militarized capital, um, um, manifest destiny, uh, colonial conquesting, and so it's it's a it's a interwoven set of privileges that are inside of that particular theology, right? We don't. When I talk about reconciliation as an interwoven set of processes, the first one, the well, after relationally constructed, authentic requires a tremendous amount of work, particularly for people who have um, had a space of superiority as a framing of their existence, right? That, uh, getting to an authentic self requires a knowledge of self outside of the um, engendered and racialized superiority. Can you still be an authentic being and show up fully self-expressed without kind of the underpinnings of that. And so that's like really, really, really hard work. I'm not, I'm not saying we're moving towards, and, and there's nothing in there, I don't think, that said anything about forgiveness. All right, I, you know, it's, it's not inside of my, um, I, I don't offer that as a part of a framework for reconciliation, right? So I think that there is a lot of hard work to do, and I don't think we're moving too fast I think we just have to be inside this long-term framework. And, and just briefly, if I can, um, yes, you did not say forgiveness, but I did because I think in, it, for me impli it's implicit mm -hmm. within the broader narrative. But so what I'm also getting at is something you said also is sort of a decolonized epistemology of looking at this whole project, right? Mm -hmm because we're working and operating within the same, using the same discursive tools and the same sort of, of, of um, uh, 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 logics mm -hmm. uh, in order to address a problem. So we're not necessarily decentering 
um, whiteness. We're not bringing in any new understanding of what it might possibly be to inform our imagination. So when you're having a conversation that to, to move back home and live with your family, this is just very simplest, simple, is somehow a problem. Well, there are folk in the two-thirds world that have figured out that this is just a more wise and economic and beneficial way to live, mm -hmm. right? But we, given sort of the global interlocking systems and structures within a colonized uh, framework, keep going over and over the same problems with tools that, that will never dismantle um, the master's house, as you know, the yeah. saying goes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, thank you. So I have a question about, and I think it's in a similar vein, but do we need to talk about um, the capacity to um, overcome or respond to trauma or the traumagenic event or the mm -hmm. traumagenesis mm -hmm. before we can speak about I mean, if you talk about the performativity of trauma, which it's like, yes, but what about the performativity of reconciliation? Mm. So if you're dealing with like generational trauma, do we need to speak to, and you may do that, and you mm -hmm. didn't have time to unpack mm -hmm. that here, mm -hmm. but I'm just curious about the capacity to, to free up the, the racialized imagination mm -hmm. in, in that, duality of race and mm -hmm. all the shades in between. Yeah. Um, so in a much larger, longer period, authentic is really an important like, part of this whole work. The question is, how do we allow ourselves to have an identity that's not disciplined by our biology? An identity that's not constrained by racial, gendered, sexual discourse? Is, are, do we actually have the capacity to even have an identity that doesn't have those narratives as, its, as the constraining place? Because inside of each of those, there is both triumph and a lot of trauma that gets performed and re-performed and passed down. And so I absolutely think that that's the work, is finding the authentic space that's not constrained by the disciplining narratives, kind of the bio, the biopolitics that have organized us and told us how and who um, we get to be in the world. I definitely think that's part of the work. That's the major part of the work. So. How are you? Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you for that uh, insightful uh, and enlightening presentations. Um, I didn't grow up in this country, and where I grew up, we were divided along uh, ethnic and religious uh, lines. So it's, it's very, although I have spent almost half my life here, my adult life, but it's still very hard for me to see what the color is all about. When I see a, you ask the question, what do you see when you see a black man? When I see a young black man, I check him out and I see whether he's handsome or not. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I can't see the color. Mm -hmm. And I'm, it's not that I'm colorblind, but 
there's something about the color, color aspect that I'm not either getting it or I just need to understand it better. To me, it seems like more of a universal problem where you have those who have the power. Uh, the, we see this in many countries, in many cultures, and they're just not necessarily willing to give it up. And to me, it seems like it's not necessarily race-related, but it's more human-related, and it seems to be a universal issue. Uh, please help me. Is this simplifying it, or is it seeing it in too big a picture? Do I need to break it down? Thank you. So the first thing I would say is um, we never, I, I would never want to jump to make an assumption that something is merely human related and not race related uh, because very often it is because when we look at how black and brown bodies are treated around the globe, um, we see similar patterns of injustice playing out. Um, so that is, that's critically important. Now how that works for you in terms of what you see when you see you know, a young black man walking down the street has a lot to do with how you were socialized and the worldview through which you came to understand you know, people and race and how that plays out. But for the majority of people in this country who were born and bred here, um, blackness uh, holds a very particular meaning in terms of the assumptions that are embedded within it for many. So, um, th th yeah. So, so religion is a social construct, it's a set of social constructs. People organize their lives around it in the same way that race gets organized around. And for some of us, we organize our lives around it in the sense of it being a reality and it being a truth and then we organize our lives around it, it that way. And people have organized their lives around race and people have organized their lives around distinctions and narratives of gender and so forth. The truth is if you've been here a long time and you don't understand race, then there's a whole lot of other stuff in this country that's confusing to you <laughs> or, is getting, or, or is getting past you. If you don't understand race in these states of America, um, a lot of other stuff makes less sense. There's some spatial, uh, spatialization questions. There's some investment and divestment kinds of questions. There's some aesthetic things and symbolisms that are just whizzing past a really fast highway. I'm not inviting you to know it. I'm inviting you to find a way to name identities. You actually could be a great contributor to this conversation by being able to help folks. How, because you don't see race, how do you identify yourself in these United States? What's your, how, how do you perform? Oh, I'm not sure I understand what you mean. Uh, well, I mean, when I'm asked, like, when I was asked to fill out forms that, that asked me about my race, I was just totally confused. Like, what is all that about? Yeah, did, you, did you check a box anyway? No. No box. I didn't check anything. Okay. I'm like, no, I, I didn't. So have I you mean, I, don't get me wrong. I know what you're talking about. I just refuse to, okay. uh, to, okay. to, to say that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I just, I don't know. I just can't. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult for me. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. I, I can't. It's just yeah. Okay. I th I think you know where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay, I guess I'm next, okay. Could I just take a moment and just respond to a question just out of a personal experience? There's a question asked about hoodies and all of that, and I found that really intriguing, and maybe this also connects to what was just uh, presented. You know, I, I work with young people, and uh, I took two folks to a hockey game at Boston University. And, uh, you know, there aren't a lot of people that look like me at hockey games at Boston University. Uh, and so it's freezing cold. Mm -hmm. We leave, and we're all wearing, you know, hoodies. Everybody's wearing a hoodie. The two people who came with me were white. They have on hoodies. Everyone next to us, next to us has on hoodies. I step out, and I put mine on, you know, and zip up. And they both look at me. They're like... My name's Montague. They're like, Montague, you look so shady with the hoodie on. <laughs> you know? I was like, what? Mm. Like, for some reason, you look shady uh -huh. with the hoodie on. Mm -hmm. Now, they are actually two people who probably would normally say, I don't see color. But they saw it when the hoodie went on. <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, we talked about that together on our ride home. And uh, that was difficult for them. Uh, especially because one of them takes pride in their ability to be beyond all of that. Sure. Uh -huh. And um, uh -huh. so I just thought I'd share that. I don't know if that mm -hmm. sits with you. Mm -hmm. or... I just respond to... Um, yeah, okay. Hoodie is probably the wrong term because even I have a hoodie. Um, what I was trying to get at more is what if he had a books brother suit? Let's forget about the hoodie. What, what, you know, what, if, what if he looked like Obama or Clarence Thomas? He, he looked like a well-educated professional. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, that's a problem. Right. So, then there's that, right? Right. Or, yeah. I should just ask my yeah. question. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so, uh, Dr. Uh, is it Booker? Hooker. Dr. Hooker. Uh -huh. um, you, you mentioned, I mean, you said race is, is fiction. Race uh, is fiction. Is fiction. And I do some work uh, along those lines. And there's something that you also named that I'm trying to work with and try to make some sense of. Um, you mentioned this need to somehow be beyond race but not ignore it. It's, it's what we have, we have to deal with it. And, um, and feel free to say that's not exactly what I said, that's probably what you're gonna say. Um, but I am really just wondering uh, about that, um, especially with you know, what kind of imagination is needed. How does one get to an imagination where they can say, where we can as collective, so as academics, we can say that and then and still talk about race in particular ways, but how do collective groups get to a place of saying, race is fiction, and together we're gonna deal with race? Mm -hmm. Now what is that, a new spirituality? Mm -hmm. uh, like how does that space get created? So I don't know that you say race is fiction and then collectively we're gonna deal with race. I think what you have to say, is, there's, 
if you're trying to get to the intersectionalities of that each of us experience, every one of us has multiple different intersecting narrative streams that construct our identities and the discourses that are attached to each of those narrative streams determine how and where we can move through society. The question is, how do we construct a world in which morphology is interesting, informative, but not predictive of the quality of life, the, per, the quality of the lived experience, the performativity, the, per, the performance that we are allowed, the, the range of behaviors that we are allowed to operate in. How do you get to that space? How do you name it? So we're not trying to get, this is Christmas after every child knows that Santa Claus is fiction. Like for a while, Everybody organizes their life around the last remaining child still believing in Santa Claus, right? We get to an age where Santa Claus is clearly fiction for everybody, and then we can have a different set of relationships around things like gift giving and relationality and love expressions and stuff like that. And how do we get to the performative space where, because race is no more and no less fictional than the Easter Bunny, Nemo, you know, it's all in that same genre. We've just attached our lives to it, right? Right, but I guess my question is, excuse um, me, you said, which is really interesting, you know, it's Christmas, after every child knows Christmas is, or Santa is fiction, but you still give presents. Yes. And <laughs> yes. And you still get excited about it, like it's where this come from. And sometimes parents still say from Santa, even if. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Right, right, right. Right. But my question is, mm. how do we get to this space? Not. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering because I, I know you've done a lot of work with this, and so I'm wondering how do we get to this space where that is meaningful. Mm -hmm. in a community where you, you can say, yes, that's fiction, but my goodness has it shaped us, and we better deal with this together. Absolutely. And we can say, we can say it's fiction, but it matters. Mm -hmm. And how do we do, well, what is that? How do mm -hmm. we get there? Yes, that's, the, that's, that's our work. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Um, I'd like to thank both of you for your presentations. They're both very informa uh, informative and very uh, entertaining to be a part. Thank you. Um, my question is around, uh, as we've established, biological race doesn't exist. There is no separation biologically between the races. But race is created as a reality through systematic power dynamics, mm -hmm. through systems of exploitation, through systems of violent reinforcement of power dynamics through systems of privileging of certain bodies. Um, so when we come down to that fact, and we come down to that basis, um, and we look at like the history of our nation, the foundation of our nation, the fact that our nation is founded in genocide, the fact that our nation is founded in anti-blackness, the fact that our nation is founded on racial capitalism, as in the racialization of capitalism, what bodies are exploitable, what bodies are not exploitable. Um, how do you respond to the stance that in a country where our very foundation, the very institutions that 
we are born and created out of. If this country is founded on that economic privileging, on that economic exploitation, and that this foundation is the basis and what maintains it, what is your response to the stance that there cannot be any reconciliation without not only the fundamental changing, but some would argue the fundamental destruction of the entire system? Yeah, I mean, I think that goes back to, as we were talking earlier, about reparations. Mm -hmm. That um, it's not just a matter of, of reconciling, but a long, you know, it, there can be no real reconciliation without the restitution of what's been done, done which includes, you know, really the, the destruction and rebuilding um, of the systems that have been put in place to create what we have. So, so what I'm encouraged by these days is um, advances in physics and light. Um, there was a very early foundational understanding of atomic structure. And based on that understanding of atomic structure and the nature of light, we built certain instruments. We told narratives. We had stories that supported particular understanding of the way that light was working. The way that, and we built a lot of systems and you know there are a lot of laboratories and research and science that was based on what we now have come to understand. We have a new story about it, right? And so inside of the new story, we have to build new science. We have to build new structures. We have to build new relationships. We have to build new systems to accommodate a current understanding of light, a current understanding of atomic structure. What's the narrative? Because you can't go back and undo the historic moment. But what's the process of moving to humanity 3.0? How do we get to the place where we have a different narrative understanding that allows us to move into a space and then moving towards that, what are the systems and structures that we have to build knowing that our commitment is as loving, fearless, reconciling people to build a world in which everybody, every sentient being has fundamentally equal access to the resource and opportunities they need to thrive, survive, make full contribution. What's the narrative that allows us to do that? Because my suggestion, my imagination is that it won't be tethered to, it won't center around the biopolitics of race and gender. It will be a very different space. And so we have to construct that new narrative. I love the fact that they found the God particle, right? It changes the way we understand all of science and what's possible in science. What's the thing that we have to name and find that allows us to restructure the spaces, the systems in, in, in pursuit of that new narrative or that new understanding? I'm not trying to go back and recreate. Knowledge is the manifest, manifestation of power, and there's a whole lot of stuff that we'll never go back and claim. And I don't think truth and reconciliation are possible in that light. They're not. Truth isn't available as a historical moment because everybody tell. In every given moment, there are 11 million bits of data. The most conscious person can only pay attention to about 100 of them, which means we're all missing stuff all the time. We can't go back and reclaim an absolute singular truth. Let's not get bogged down in that. Let's find the narrative. And so reconciliation is a future-oriented narrative, and we have to name a 
new way of being, a humanity 3.0, that allows us to move into something and points towards different systems. I, I get the recitation of the history. It's not, the history isn't in any way informative of our future. Or, or, and neither must it be predictive of our future. We have to decide what story we're living into and then build the relationships, resources, and structures that allow us to claim that. We have time for one more question. Okay, uh, last night I was privileged to hear the author of uh, her, her, her narrative called Waking Up White, and I was reminded again that for my first 10 summers, my mother's older sister came from Florida and she treated me like the colored maid's kid. So that gives me one story, but I also am reminded my father's French Canadian, and so I liked, I liked your point that there are whites with privilege and there are whites with less privilege, and we know who they're voting for. But what I was really excited about is that you did tell the story of my friend Zacchaeus, who came into the story just before Palm Sunday, according mm -hmm. to Luke. Mm -hmm. um, salvation and the definition mm -hmm. is exciting for someone who didn't go to seminary, became a social economist. Mm -hmm. But you said something about new theologies that need to come out. Can you say something more on where we could go with that? I think that it's just what narratives we're living into and how do we draw on. Once we've decided the narrative that we're living into, you draw on the scriptural references, the wisdom, the teaching, and all of those things that are available to us in support of this narrative. I don't know that there is one, um, only one acceptable interpretation of the scriptural references. And so our theology really in, is informed by the narratives that we bring to the theology. And so we have to tell a new story and then find the scriptural references, not like just you know uh, proof texting or whatever, but find deep in those references ways of moving towards a theological, legal, educational, social relational framework that supports living inside of uh, a new humanity. Good, I'm losing sleep for the right reason. <laughs> mm. You know, I wanna make a, a comment about the white privilege. Mm -hmm. um, because, for, you know, I, I'm going all around talking about these things and listening. Mm -hmm. A lot of white people say, but I grew up poor. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have privilege. And look at that person over there, now that's privilege. They've got a private plane. But the argument is that when we talk about white privilege, it's not about being framed in economic terms, but understanding that this white colored skin is the privilege. So, you know, when we say black lives matter, we're met with, well, all lives matter. And what's so problematic about that is the first thing is to whom do all lives matter? Mm -hmm for the data surely doesn't show mm -hmm. 
that all lives matter. Anecdotal experience doesn't show that. And so, you know, to be met with that is always so deeply problematic because for years when environmentalists have said, we need to save the whales, mm -hmm. it was not met with, <laughs> well, all fish matter. <laughs> was it? Mm. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Mm -hmm. But when we say black lives matter, mm -hmm. it's dismissed mm -hmm. as no, all people are important. So, and that too is an act of privilege um, because it's only a privileged people who say that. So I just want to put that out there in terms of when we talk about white privilege, um, we absolutely have to push folks beyond so quickly dismissing it into, well, I grew up poor, or I grew up you know, without this and that, but to really do the work of understanding what this white skin privilege is all about. Thank you for this um, wonderful conversation. As I've been listening to all these comments, um, I am a historian, so I've been thinking about a book, um, an old book by a historian named Edmund Morgan called American Slavery, American Freedom that was published in 1968. Um, it is, I think, is one of the most passionate uh, books ever written about race. Morgan didn't use the term whiteness because the, the field of whiteness studies didn't really even emerge until the 1990s, which I think in and of itself says something, that we didn't talk about whiteness as a category until fairly recently. But Morgan argued that whites in the 18th century were able to support a new democratic system because whites of different social classes saw themselves as united against blacks. Um, so he argued that American freedom was in fact built on American slavery. Freedom and whiteness were imagined as the same thing. So today I think that lesson has been so deeply internalized that it's very difficult to convince whites that they, and not just African Americans, have been shaped by the trauma of slavery. So I can only hope that the speech that has been performed tonight um, will, will help make possible a new reality because we do need new narratives. Um, I would like to bring David Hempton back up to close for us. I'm still reeling from the statement that Santa Claus is fiction. <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> um, um, yeah, just a few um, uh, concluding announcements. Uh, so after this, is, uh, as usual, we'll have a reception with tea and dessert in the lobby until nine. So please do stay, stay around and, um, uh, and continue the conversation. The Harvard Coop will be selling books in the lobby in case you'd like to pick up a copy of uh, Dr. Leah uh, Gunning Francis's book, Ferguson and Faith, um, uh, Sparking Leadership and Awakening Community. So that's available outside. Uh, uh, Dr. David Anderson Hooker's forthcoming book, um, which is uh, uh, royalty free at the moment. <laughs> um, the, the Little Book of Transformative Community Conferencing, great title is anticipated to be published this summer, so please be on the lookout for that. 
Skyhorse Publishing, expected July 2016. It's, it's actually available for pre-order. It is. We've we've cleared the cover art and uh, everything, yeah. so it's uh, available right. for pre-order July 1. Uh, it will be, yeah. Great. Thank yeah. you. Um, by popular demand, we're now uh, listing online the readings recommended by our uh, guest speakers for each session. So please <clears throat> visit the RPP web website, and you can get access to those readings. If you haven't yet done so, uh, be sure to sign up for the RPP mailing list to receive announcements of upcoming events. So our next section, our next session in April is going to be on humanitarianism, religion, and peace practice. Mm -hmm. And our speakers will be Dr. Mark uh, Gopin, um, uh, whose uh, book I've just finished reading, and uh, it's a terrific read. So um, uh, he's presenting on the lived theology of Judaism. And Dr. Elizabeth uh, Promodo presenting on the lived theology of Orthodox Christianity, uh, who's also a, a terrific um, a scholar and speaker. So we, we expect that to be a great session. So please do come and, and bring uh, friends um, as we keep building what we're trying to do here. Uh, do we know the date exactly, Liz? April 14th. April 14th. Yeah, April 14th. It's on the website. Yeah, it's on the website. <laughs> so, um, uh, so I want to just finish uh, by thanking um, uh, our uh, distinguished uh, and tremendously thought-provoking and challenging speakers, uh, Dr. Leah Gunning uh, Francis, uh, Dr. David uh, Anderson Hooker, um, uh, for what you've brought to us tonight. Uh, we uh, deeply appreciate it. I, I know you're suffering a little in the middle of this, but I, uh, um, we're very glad you're, you're with us. And thank you all for a great set of questions and for very skillful um, uh, moderation. So um, please do stay around and come and uh, uh, eat and drink down the corridor. Thank you so much again for coming. <laughs>